here so who does it better right religious people or, or secular people who has more sex who has better sex so i've spent much of my life religious but i've also spent much of my life in, in the secular world these are some impressions that come to me it certainly seems that secular people have more sexual partners it also seems that more sexually adventurous that you know it seems like they do more positions try new things uh, it seems like religious people tend to put less importance on sex, all right? In religious circles, there's a constant, you know, uh, downplaying of the importance of sex compared to the obsessions of the secular. For secular people, I think sexuality is one of those rare places where they can reach for transcendence and mystery and magic, all right? A secular life tends to be fairly drained of those Welcome things. Welcome to Tucker Carlson's Happy Monday. As we've often noted on this show, because it's hard not to notice, we are living in one of those moments where so much is happening all at once, and information about it all is so tightly controlled that huge history-changing events can occur, and in fact are occurring right now, and nobody seems aware of them. It's pretty unsettling, actually. Here's one example. Europe is descending into poverty. Did you know that? Had someone told you that? So the most advanced continent on the planet, the birthplace of Western civilization, our civilization, is getting much poorer very quickly. It's moving backward at high speed. Just a year ago, Europe was a modern place. For example, the overwhelming majority of Europeans heated their homes with natural gas, as modern people do. In Germany, the continent's richest country, only about 6% of households, most of them rural, heated with cordwood. And you'd expect that given that, again, Germany is a modern industrialized country with central heating and indoor plumbing and all the other trappings of a society that has moved beyond the medieval period. Last year, only about 6% of Germans used wood to heat their homes, but that has changed dramatically. Demand for firewood in Germany has risen so fast that there is none left to buy. You can't get it. So desperate Germans are now cutting their own wood, scouring the forest like their ancestors for sources of heat. Watch. Some in Germany are taking matters into their own hands with solutions that might look like a blast from the past. About two hours outside Berlin, residents of this small town have turned to wood chips for fuel. We have to be innovative, said the project's organizer. If we don't act and just rely on the government to solve the crisis, we'll never succeed. This burner will soon fuel most of this village of 60 people. So they call it biomass, but it's wood. They're burning wood, again, as they did during the feudal period. That's Germany. In Poland, families are standing in line for days to buy coal. Not in 1910, right now, tonight. Cars queued up outside coal mines hoping for fuel. Quote, this is beyond imagination, one 57-year-old Polish man told Reuters. People are sleeping in their cars. I remember the communist times, but it didn't cross my mind that we could return to something even worse. Oh, but it's come. Something even worse has arrived. The French government has announced energy rationing this winter. Just the other day, France had so much energy that it exported it to other countries. It was a net exporter of energy. Now, there won't be enough heat in France for everyone in the country to stay warm. In the UK, 70% of restaurants are preparing to close, to go under. 
Why? Because when winter comes, they won't be able to afford to keep the heat and lights on, et cetera, et cetera. This is happening across Europe in every country. So the question is, why is it happening? And the answer is extremely simple. There's an energy shortage in Europe. Cheap energy is essential. It is the key to everything that a normal society strives for. Prosperity, safety, a longer life expectancy for its citizens. Everything depends on cheap energy, but Europe no longer has it. And as a result, things are falling apart very quickly. Energy costs in Europe are expected to increase by hundreds of percent in coming months. Germany's year-ahead price of electricity, that's the benchmark for all of Europe, it's measured in euros per megawatt hour, that price just exceeded 1,000 euros for the first time in history. For perspective, just a week ago, last Monday, the cost was about 700 euros per megawatt hour, and that was a record. In other words, the price rise is approaching 50% in a single week. In France, electricity went up 25% in one day. That was last Friday. Imagine that happening to you. Here's what Europe looks like tonight. In Europe, it's lights out at major monuments and tourist attractions as a long, hot summer gives way to what officials worry could be a bitterly cold winter. Skyrocketing energy prices have put Europe on a war footing with Russia as the enemy. We're in what can be described as a hybrid war, said French President Emmanuel Macron. Russia uses energy resources, like it does food, as a war weapon to exert pressure. Oil prices have doubled, coal prices have quadrupled, and natural gas is now seven times more expensive than early last year. Seven times more expensive. So it turns out if you don't have cheap natural gas, you can't run the continent. Now, if you've got a graduate degree and live in a city in the United States, you may be shocked to learn this. You may never have heard this before. You may have believed that fossil fuels were on their way out any day now. And you thought that because the Davos people and our own leaders assured us of that for decades. They told us that green energy was the future and the future is here. It's here. As recently as last month, the World Economic Forum claimed that Europe could save, quote, one trillion in fossil fuel costs by switching to renewables. But it turns out, and this may not shock you, they had no clue what they were talking about. They knew nothing about the subject, the subject they talked about endlessly. Green energy cannot replace fossil fuels. Not now, not anytime soon. Fossil fuels remain what they have always been, the key to civilization. That is true now. That has been true since Homo erectus started the first cooking fire in a cave nearly a million years ago. So-called green energy is not close, is nowhere near replacing gas and oil and coal. It's measurable. We could have known this. Anyone with eighth grade math skills could have figured out in about 10 minutes that we cannot replace fossil fuels with renewables or green energy. And of course, they must have known that. When they told you otherwise, it was just posturing. It was childish and destructive fantasy talk that apparently fooled millions of their citizens and millions of ours. The Green New Deal means what it always meant. It means poverty. And the people pushing the Green New Deal must have known that all along. They don't actually believe climate change is an imminent threat. If they actually believe climate change was an imminent threat, an existential emergency, the first thing they would have done, the very first would be to ban <laughs> private jets. Oh, but no, to this day, Al Gore still flies on private jets. Barack Obama owns tens of millions of dollars of beachfront property. He knows the oceans aren't rising. Come on. So they're all in on it. It's a scam, but they don't care because they know they personally will escape the consequences of their own policies. 
So when the French president announces that his people are facing the end of abundance, he's not talking about himself. He's not facing the end of abundance. None of them are. Macron and all of them understand they will always be rich and always be protected. They know that for certain. What's changed, what's so very interesting, is that suddenly everyone else who's been paying attention can see that they were lying. They are frauds, and the entire population of Europe now knows that. Donald Trump, to his credit, whatever you think of him, caught on to this early. Four years ago, Trump warned Europe about its energy future during his speech at the United Nations. The German delegation laughed at him. Remember this? Germany will become totally dependent on Russian energy if it does not immediately change course. Here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintaining our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. It has been the formal policy of our country since President Monroe. Oh, they're laughing. We have green parties here in Europe. You have no idea what you're talking about. But they're not laughing anymore. The Europeans have discovered that the real threat to human civilization is not global warming. It never was global warming. The real threat to people is global cooling, otherwise known as winter. Far more people freeze to death every year than die of heat. In 2019, for example, four times as many people died of cold as of heat. That's according to the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. So when temperatures in Europe begin to drop a few months from now, this is a huge problem, and that will be obvious to everyone. It's not global warming, it's global cooling. That's what's going to kill your grandmother. And when everyone understands that perfectly well, a lot of things are going to happen. The status quo will crumble. Factories will close. Unemployment will rise. Disposable income will disappear. And you're seeing signs of that already. Personal savings rates are down dramatically. In this country, 60% of Americans can't cover an expected $400 expense. Credit card debt increasing year over year by 13%. That's the biggest jump in 20 years. Total household debt set an all-time record of $15.8 trillion. That's in this country. It's also true, similarly, in Europe. So how will spiraling energy costs affect all of this? And what will be the cascading effect? Well, when the cost of keeping your apartment warm jumps by hundreds of percent in a single year, you become a completely different person. You change your behavior radically. You're no longer tempted to buy a new $1,400 iPhone or shop at Whole Foods or even pick up an extra cappuccino. The entire consumer economy grinds to a halt because there's no discretionary income. So it is impossible to overstate the downstream effects on the world of an energy crisis. Everything changes. How are the central banks responding to this? Not well. They seem to be making things worse on purpose. You know, in the United States, we're told not to notice what the Fed does because the Fed is now diverse and therefore great. Amazing piece in the AP just the other day announcing that, quote, leadership of the Federal Reserve has become its most diverse ever. There are more female, black and gay officials contributing to the central bank's interest rate decisions than at any time in its 109 year history. Okay. in other words, relax. We've got affirmative action. Everything's fine. Great. But somehow it doesn't seem to be working. The same central banks that intentionally caused inflation, and they did, those same central banks are now hiking rates to destroy demand. The problem is, this isn't a demand problem. This is a supply problem. 
And it stems primarily from the war in Ukraine. Because of that war, the West does not have enough energy to continue its economy or its society. Europe responded to that war by imposing sanctions that they knew would inevitably cause energy shortages. They knew it when they did it. Here's the president of the European Commission back in May. And let's be clear, it will not be easy because some member states are strongly dependent on Russian oil, but we simply have to do it. So today we will propose to ban all Russian oil from Europe. Really? Are you going to be keeping your apartment at 49 degrees Fahrenheit? Will you be walking to work? No, of course not. You'll have whatever you want forever. But the rest of us, she informed us, quote, simply have to do it. And it's not just energy that's being affected by these sanctions. In Brussels, Joe Biden warned that food shortages are inevitable. Remember this? With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. Oh, so we're all going to have to buckle down for freedom. We have to shovel billions to Ukrainian oligarchs who clearly hate the United States because it's the right thing to do. We need to hurt Russia because it's our moral duty. So did these sanctions actually hurt Russia? They caused food and energy shortages throughout the West. No, they didn't hurt Russia. Russia today has more than enough energy, more energy that it can use or sell. In fact, Russia has so much excess natural gas that it's simply setting it on fire. That's right, flaring it, as they say. A Russian plant near the border with Finland is burning $10 million worth of natural gas every day. This seems like a big story. So how's the media covering this? Well, here's the BBC. Quote, scientists are concerned about the large volumes of carbon dioxide and soot it is creating, which could exacerbate the melting of Arctic ice. Really? That's your concern? More global warming? When the immediate effect is to make it impossible for people to Europe to stay warm. You can reach a place in your society where the people in charge and their lapdogs in the media become so completely disconnected from the concerns of actual people, become so totally uninterested in the lives of citizens, the society becomes very volatile and we are fast approaching that point. So we could fix this problem. The solution to this catastrophe is very straightforward. End the war in Ukraine. Reestablish energy flows into Europe and save the global economy, including ours. Is Joe Biden doing that? There are other reckless Western leaders like Boris Johnson doing that? No, they're doing the opposite. They're sending billions more from their dying economies to Ukrainian oligarchs, and for no good reason. The UK has committed $2.8 billion to Ukraine in a country where 70% of pubs may close because they can't afford electricity. This is a government that's preparing for power outages in the middle of winter. As The Guardian reported, under the government's last reasonable worst-case scenario, officials believe the UK could experience blackouts for several, days, for several days in January if cold weather combines with gas shortages to leave the country short of power. Well, of course cold weather will combine with gas shortages because that's when people use gas, when the weather is cold. Wake up, geniuses. And it's not just happening in the UK. Again, it's happening everywhere. Spain has just approved more than 50 million euros for Ukraine. And that's not including funding for military hardware. 
In other news, Spain's Congress just implemented temperature controls on commercial buildings. Air conditioning must be no cooler than 27 degrees Celsius. That's 80 Fahrenheit, by the way, in case you don't live there in August. After 10 p.m., shop windows in unoccupied public buildings won't be lit. How about Italy? Well, Italy has allocated more than 600 million euros for Ukrainian refugees. And yet at the same time, air conditioning in Italian schools and public buildings has already been restricted in what the government labeled Operation Thermostat. That began in May. Italy's Ukraine funding is a lot, but it's not quite as much as France. France has sent more than $2 billion U.S. to Ukraine. And at the same time, France is fining shopkeepers for keeping their doors open and running their air conditioning so we can send more weapons to one of the most corrupt governments in the world. In France, illuminated signs are banned from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. For our part, the United States has sent more than $10 billion in military aid. That's 19 packages of weapons to what Mitch McConnell tells us is the most important thing in the world. Congress has approved more than $30 billion in additional spending. So how is all that spending working out? Are we winning the war in Ukraine? Have we bankrupted Vladimir Putin like Joe Biden claimed we would? The ruble just hit a seven-year high against the U.S. dollar in June. Take a look at this chart comparing the Russian ruble against the euro. Russia's doing well. Europe is not doing well at all. Now Joe Biden is calling for an unconditional surrender from Vladimir Putin. Here's the weird thing. By any actual reality-based measure, Vladimir Putin is not losing the war in Ukraine. He is winning the war in Ukraine. And Joe Biden looks at that and says, we won't stop until you proffer an unconditional surrender. This isn't bad policy. This is nuts. It makes no sense. In fact, it only makes sense if the goal is to completely destroy the West in order to make way for Chinese global dominance. What would be the other explanation for this behavior? Retired Army Colonel Doug McGregor joins us tonight to assess all of this. So, so Doug, I'm just wondering, this war has consequences, not simply for the Ukrainians and the Russian government, but for the West more broadly, our country and particularly Europe. Do the people who make the decisions in Washington about how long to extend this war factor that in? I think there's an easy answer to that question, Tucker. Absolutely not. There was no careful study or preparation for this policy in any way, shape, or form. And, and more important, the points that you've made should give pause to the ruling elites of Europe and the United States to remember that in 1789, the French Revolution broke out when the people of Paris could no longer afford to buy bread. That's right. Well, where are we headed? Are we headed into a position where... Our own population can't afford to heat itself and care for itself. We can't operate our scientific industrial infrastructure. I think it's a very real challenge, and I think it's going to hit Europe very hard this winter. Populations get radical when their standard of living moves backwards. People think things are getting better, the American dream we used to call it. They're calm, they're hopeful. But when they start sliding in the wrong direction, people, as you just know, to get crazy. Is this a concern for Boris Johnson, Macron, or Joe Biden? Well, if it isn't a concern for the people in Europe, for the ruling elites there like Macron or Olaf Scholz and others, it should be. Because I think we're going to witness something like that in Europe first before we see it here. And as far as the energy issue, yes, end the war in Ukraine, lift the sanctions against Russia. They're doing far more damage to us than they are to Russia. So that's part of it. But here's the real problem. 
Certainly since Biden came in, he's done everything in his power to eventually stop the investment of capital in the energy sector. So capital has migrated away from the energy sector. We haven't built a new refinery in the United States since the 1970s. He canceled the Keystone Pipeline. And the problem with those things is that it takes years to build the infrastructure so you don't see the energy flows improve. And then finally, we've lost touch with another reality. Today, the world is different from what it was 30 or 40 years ago. We have huge populations in India and China, new economies that demand energy. We are lifetimes away from replacing fossil fuels with so-called green energy, lifetimes away globally. And I, I wish people would be honest about that. Hey, the most catastrophic thing that the uh, Biden administration has done is what they've not done to try to achieve peace vis-a-vis Ukraine versus Russia. I mean, this could very well turn into World War Three, And I'm surprised. I mean, Peter Zion would have to be surprised at, at how well the... Uh, Russian energy market is doing. I mean, Russia is pumping, pumping, and selling its oil. Russia confounds the West by recapturing its oil riches. Moscow is raking in more revenue than ever with Wall the Street help Journal. of new buyers, new traders, and the world's seemingly insatiable demand for crude. By Joe Wallace and Anna Hirtenstein. August 29, 2022, 10.05 a.m. Eastern Time. Russia pumps almost as much oil into the global market as it did before its invasion of Ukraine. With oil prices up, Moscow is also making more money. Demand from some of the world's largest economies has given Russian President Vladimir Putin the upper hand in the energy battle that shadows the war in Ukraine and has confounded the West's bid to cripple Russia's economy with sanctions. Sales are booming in Russia's export market, the world's largest in crude and refined fuels and new trade arrangements have given Mr. Putin cover to use natural gas exports as an economic weapon against Ukraine's European allies. Before the war, Russia supplied Europe with 40% of its gas. It has since throttled flows through the Nord Stream pipeline to Germany and other conduits, driving prices higher and putting pressure on European households and businesses. And why didn't the Biden administration try to do something about this disaster. The, it was supposed to work Robert like this. Wright, you know, a guy Nikki like Carlson. centrally involved in the poisoning. This was recently? Tape. Oh, this was months ago. Uh, but what I learned recently is that guy has apparently disappeared. I guess uh, I guess his performance did not get favorable reviews uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, <laughs> um, well, see, it's usually murders like that, and you, you sort of know who's responsible. Well, in that you case, can't prove it. In that, yeah, in this case, we... That's well, also, that guy was murdered on the bridge. Uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty yeah, obvious that, he did but it. Yeah, but there's no smoking gun. I mean, the, the you know... Oh, but this one, there was a genuine mystery. That one, there's not really a mystery. True, true. There are a lot of different kinds of pe- parties who, who could benefit in that case, right? Yeah. Um, uh, well, that was, that was uh, satisfyingly complicated. Well, it is. It is. Uh, and as long as I'm on the subject, just to deliver on one more promise about what would be in the pair room, uh, about how cynical the Biden administration is about this. I, I, in writing, I wrote a piece in the newsletter about this. And I used the Dugina thing as an occasion to go back and revisit this podcast interview of this pretty high-ranking State Department official named Derek, named Derek Cholet, who is he's counselor to the State Department, which means he reports directly to Blinken. And about six weeks into the war, he goes on this podcast, and for the first time, we have a State Department official saying we refused to discuss NATO expansion with them, you know, acknowledging 
Acknowledgement isn't the word because he was proud of it. Right. So Russia is poised for war and the United States refuses to discuss NATO expansion. And Russia goes to war, may very well bring about World War III. The United States under Joe Biden refused to even discuss NATO expansion with Vladimir Putin. Just sheer recklessness. And think about why Biden did this. One, because his popularity ratings were so low, he thought he could spike his popularity ratings by appearing tough on Russia. And two, it's a geostrategic gamble that they will bankrupt Russia and remove it from among the great powers. But at what an enormous cost? I mean, the end of Ukraine as we know it, what, about 10 million Ukrainians have left the country. Tens of thousands of people have died or been severely injured. Like, no, we, we would not talk to them about their central grievance before the war. One of the things that stood some kind of chance of preventing the war. And when the guy kind of challenged him, the guy said, wait, you didn't even, you didn't want to talk about it? He, and, and, he, and he kind of said, well, no, but this isn't, I don't think this is a win for Russia. Because by this time you knew they'd failed to take Kiev. And he says, you know, you're going to have this long grinding conflict in the Donbass and this, this is going to weaken Russia. And, and it's clear, like, he was presenting it as vindication of not negotiating, you know, preventing the war through negotiation, that this would weaken Russia. And I really think, and I've since heard from someone who knows him via email, this, this guy who says, uh, he, this person who emailed me, whom you know, said, uh, and knows this guy, said he is quite sure that this guy's views do represent the views of, of kind of the State Department, the Biden administration. Um, and, and the idea is, uh, you know, as, 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 uh, Chaz, what's, as Chaz Freeman put it, uh, we've decided to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. You know, that we are viewing it as a proxy war. And uh, it, just, it just kind of but makes it, me sick. The idea that we promoted the war in order to grind them down, that's a little different than, than using it as an excuse yeah, for not I, bringing up uh, NATO expansion. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that we intentionally didn't make any kind of offer that stood a chance of being accepted because we wanted the war. I wouldn't go that far, but I'm telling you, you got to listen to the podcast. He sounds pretty damn happy about the way things are going. And he must, he must be one of the people who talked to Niall Ferguson. Why? What did Niall Ferguson say? But you remember early on in the conflict, Niall Ferguson said these crazy, every crazy Biden people in Washington think they're going to grind Putin slow down slowly in this war. And it's going to send a warning to China not to mess with Taiwan. And uh, Ferguson thought it was uh, a crazy strategy, but he said people in the Biden administration actually believed it. So he had some sources, probably similar to your sources, right? They, yeah, and they may. The, um, I mean, what I would say on behalf of the Biden administration is I, I, I suspect they also looked at the domestic political environment and said, you know. Exactly. They looked at the domestic political environment. And they thought, ah, appearing tough on Russia, that would be good for Joe Biden politically. So... Yeah. We got uh, David is back in town. David, how are you? It's been uh, what ten days since I spoke to you last. What's what's going on, man? Hey, Broker Shem, I finally got uh, the construction in my house finished. I, I had my bathroom redone, and it you know dragged on. The contractor had some issues finishing, and uh, just today it's finally finished. I got a new bathroom. Oh, congratulations! What does it feel like? I haven't used it yet, so tomorrow morning we'll see. Fantastic. And uh, have you done any live streams since I spoke to you last? Um, Week in Review with Church of Entropy, Charles Moskowitz, just uh, the usual. I did a stream on my channel going over all of my essays and plans for future essays, some of my research about... Uh, 
self and identity formation. Well, were there any big confrontations on any of these live streams? Any any memorable moments to share? Um, I've been coaching Jennifer in her writing, and I'm not a great writer, but uh, maybe I'm proficient. You know, I, I have a University of Michigan degree. My mom still helps me out, but uh, you know, I guess her degree is physics, so I, I've been coaching her, going over her writing, and you'd know, be a little contentious. You know, say like expertise is an extension of self and so like critiquing somebody's writing is uh you know can be can be insulting but uh, i think we made a lot of progress so i think she's gonna you know start coming out with essays pretty soon too okay great so you sent me an article it's open season on jews in new york city begins the attack that sent 31 year old yossi hirschkopf to the hospital was an unmysterious crime it was the opposite of a whodunit security cameras recorded clear video of a group of four men approaching his car two of them repeatedly punched him through the driver's side window while his five-year-old child sat in the back seat another camera recorded the license plate and model of the attacker's getaway vehicle the assault took place around 3.40 p.m., July 13th, on a busy street in Crown Heights. Right, so the assailants were easy to identify, but uh, the police did not move quickly. No arrests were made during two weeks after the attack. And then finally after this guy raises a stink on, on social media, right after he tweets about it, there's finally an arrest. The first suspect is released on bail. Right on a bond of ten thousand dollars, and what kind of efforts is the New York Police Department making towards uh, arresting the second individual who who physically attacked him? I mean, it was all there on camera, and and maybe the the attack was just too fraught of an event for the police to want to handle too aggressively. Maybe someone feared that drawing additional attention to groups of young black men attaching a prominent Orthodox Jew would threaten to inflame tensions in the neighborhood. Any thoughts on this story, David? Yeah, God forbid. You know, it's, it looks uh, pretty bad. There was that attached study uh, from Americans against anti-Semitism, and uh, you, you know, there's really no punishment, or the punishment is very minimal. People are released, and uh, you know, I, I didn't have a chance to watch. I couldn't find it. The CNN special on rising hate anti-semitism and you know they always focus on the right wing um but i mean the reality is most bad things that happen to jews it's black on jewish violence and specifically in new york city probably why eric adams was uh elected mayor because uh they wanted someone to do something about crime and you know being a former police officer although he hasn't really done anything and so now you have this case where uh you know, it's kind of known that uh, that uh, they're not going to be punished. And, you know, at worst case, they're going to be booked and have a court case. I'm not saying it's necessarily like nothing to be arrested or processed, but, uh, and there's a lot like, you know, this murderer in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, is on the loose, and it's not, uh, you're not a big news story. You know, God forbid, uh, you know, a young Jewish father was uh, killed in broad daylight installing uh, solar panels and uh, they have the name information of the murderer and uh it's not you know a news story outside of uh, jewish sources it's not considered like a major uh 
um, you know, you know, event like they have to catch this guy, and you know, this one's murder. Like they probably will eventually catch him, and he'll have some sort of punishment. But you know, even relatively, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems happening in America. There, there's reasons why, uh, you know, the African American vote, uh, criminal reform, uh, lack of money, uh, you know, prisons overcrowding. But uh, yeah, I thought it was of note. Just uh, you know, I don't know if, what it's like there in la that uh you know certainly with the shoplifting or stealing but it, but if it's like violence where you know you could basically just get away with it and uh chabad uh Lubavitch's branch of hasidic judaism they tend actually to be fairly soft on punishment they're not big fans of sending people to to prison so they vote republican but they're not exactly law and order tough on crime tough on on punishment type of people i mean they're about the the most forgiving and fairly liberal in their attitudes towards uh, law enforcement and uh, punishing wrongdoers. Any thoughts on that? Are other are other Hasidim similar to that? Um. Well, there's a different scenario because you know Chabad is overwhelmingly in an African American neighborhood in a very you know small minority of tens of thousands of, of uh, Orthodox Jews within. Uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, African-American and Caribbean um, and, and also Chabad, you know, being based on Kirov and, uh, um, you know, repentance that uh, might have a stronger, uh, you know, concept of repentance. Uh, you're generally like that uh, in the other Jewish communities, they were big Giuliani fans, uh, fans of stop and frisk. You have Shomrum in, in Crown Heights, but they're not as good as, uh, you know, like in Borough Park where I lived, you had countless people involved in Shomrim, walkie-talkies, uh, but uh, you know, Jews are the majority, and uh, and there's a subdivision, you know, so there's not really too many blacks in uh, Borough Park, and uh, you know, you have uh, Dominicans, Italians, Chinese, so uh, you know, relatively, it's not as bad in Borough Park and Crown Heights also you have a chunk of African Americans, but it's I think it's more like a third, a third, a third of uh, Hispanics, African Americans, and Hasidim. And uh it's also like that in Williamsburg, like you know, every few days uh Hasidic Jew gets beat up most of the time by African Americans. Sometimes there'll be an arrest, but even if there is an arrest, um you know, there's usually not punishment. So uh but uh it's probably unique among uh, Chabad, you know, like most Orthodox Jews are kind of high in authority, call the cops, uh, you know, you got to do something about this. I, I think, uh, I don't know if you agree with that assessment, yes. you know, Jews generally are high in authority and Orthodox Jews, you're generally, especially in terms of crime and violence, uh, you're very caught up with the police department and encouraging the police department. Yeah. Okay, I, I thought I'd do a, a stream today about uh, religious attitudes and practices with regard to sex versus uh, secular attitudes and practices. We'll also hit many of the topics that we were talking about via Twitter, but let's just let's just uh, talk about the the subject topic for for a minute to see if you have any thoughts. So it seems to me one of the big differences between the religious and the secular with regard to sex is that the religious tend to put less importance on it. So generally speaking, when you hang out around religious people, they kind of mock 
the the great importance that secular people put on on sex. So from from a religious perspective, sex is just one more way to serve God. It's not an end in and of itself. Do you have any thoughts on that, dude? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, like Orthodox Jews are low testosterone, you know, people relatively, um, you know, like even yeshiva, um, you know, even like masturbation is extremely frowned upon. Um, it's a general acceptance that uh, you're going to marry one woman, stay for the rest of your life. And even I would say the ma majority of Orthodox Jews are even willing to marry unattractive women, you know, to some extent. I say all women are attractive to some extent, but it's saying that of the priority scale uh, w within Orthodox Judaism, the, you know, the, of the attractiveness of the spouse is much lower than in secular, secular society. Although, you know, you have the off the Derek people or, or the people that, uh, you know, leave Judaism and, uh, and, and want to try out the opposite extreme. And like you said, the stereotype that outside of the Orthodox community is, uh, you know, everybody's hypersexualized. That, uh, you know, you can't, like, uh, you can't really trust the women around anybody. Um, you know, so if it's a feeling of the women, like, you know, stay away from men, um, you know, even, to, um, I think we talked about that before, uh, but just that, like, you know, having your hair covered, uh, being sneeas. Um, I think we talked about the Gamoras too, about, uh, you know, not trying to be too pretty. Uh, it's not a good thing if people find you attractive, uh, and, and an over, an overestimization of the amount of sexual predation in uh, your regular society and degeneration. How does how does it affect Orthodox Jews to live in a hyper-sexualized society? Now, it, it seems to me from what I observe and what I hear that still the majority of Orthodox Jews are virgins when they get married. The overwhelming majority of Orthodox Jews who get married do not get divorced. And to be a sexually promiscuous Orthodox Jew is is practically a contradiction in terms. Uh, but even Orthodox Jews are going to be affected by the hypersexualization of the society around them. So one of the ways that I see that is that I know pretty much any Orthodox Jewish man that I know well over about age 28 is, is a porn addict if he's a bachelor. Like if you're an Orthodox Jew and you're still a bachelor over age 28, you're usually a porn addict. Also, a lot of uh, married Orthodox men uh, struggle with, with porn addiction. So that's probably the primary way that a hypersexualized society affects Orthodox Jews. Any thoughts, David? Well, I mean, people are people, and and you know, are going to have the regular urges of any human. Um, but you know, there's a certain, I mean, certainly the rabbinic exceptions for pornography to. Uh, um, using pornography like uh you know to uh get yourself aroused in order to have relations with your wife i'm not sure about the levels of porn addiction i mean you know if you're if you're an old, an older single I, I think there's a high amount of uh low testosterone uh you know, low low sexual aggression i mean like i, I remember jewish events and there you know just be a few women and even in new york uh you know, like 
promiscuous type women and uh, you you like Jews Jews in general but you know orthodox Jews if I mean, call them low T but uh you know even saying like like not not interesting like like a uh a, a misunderstanding of like how could even someone act like this so I mean there's a certain element of porn addiction you know like god forbid homosexuality child molestation where the you know the drive is suppressed and comes out in other forms like uh, homosexuality or uh, child molestation um but uh I think there's you know a certain element of uh you know asexuality or uh you know high intellectual people that uh are down on the bodily urges and uh you're kind of continuously in the fight so i'm not, I'm not sure about what you're saying like I, I would doubt that uh you know, like porn addiction that uh you know someone's within orthodox judaism they're not going to maintain a healthy uh porn addiction like i think you'd have to somewhat be on the down the you know the uh you know approaching the the outskirts like are you still davening putting on tefillin if you're a Hasidic, do you still have the beard? Do you still go to the base medrash and learn? And if you're doing something that's so out of line, like a porn addiction, is that going to cause your inability to still daven with a minion, go to the base medrash, and, uh, and and learn? Or you think uh, that you're saying if you're an old balker, uh, you old bachelor, that uh, you know you you fall out of going to minion and uh, learning in uh, the base medrash or going to yeshiva or you think that the person maintains the orthodox lifestyle and a porn addiction at the same time well there are people who may from from my personal knowledge maintain an orthodox lifestyle and a porn addiction at the same time on the other hand you can kind of tell that they're not for brenta you can you can tell that they're not uh, passionate about their yiddishkeit you can you can tell that they're not you know davening with kavana praying with with intention so I'd have to think it, it verges on the impossible to be passionately devoted to your davening, to your prayers, and also maintain an active porn addiction at the same time. So it is possible to maintain the orthodox lifestyle without having much ruach, without having much spirit behind it. Mostly what you do find is sometimes divorcees are off the derrick where they people go really overboard to the other side because they feel that they missed out on it. And like, you know, uh, or, or sometimes, you know, people are upset that they're older virgins, you know, saying like, you know, in my 20s, I'm a virgin in 30s or you know, 40s, you know, virgin. And they're saying like, uh, you know, like, you know, Jews, to some extent, we, we have big egos. And, uh, you know, say like something that the majority of African-American teenagers accomplish uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of you know Jews will have a difficult time accomplishing. And. Uh, you know, if it was a level like okay, like you know, I used to party promote, I knew a lot of Hasidim, and I mean, prostitution's a reality. Like in New York, there's prostitution. You might find Orthodox Jews that will visit prostitutes, or even like a bar. Um, but a lot of times, like the training of the Orthodox Judaism, um, it could also be the same with Hindus or any strict religion. Maybe Seventh Day Adventists. It's just like foreign to say like I can't bring myself to behave like this. I've been trained so well to repress my animal urges to think that this is wrong, that I just can't bring myself to do it. 
Yeah, and I, I'm not suggesting for a minute that Orthodox Jews are more likely to use pornography than, than non-Jews. It's just uh, among the Orthodox Jewish bachelors who I know well, after about age 30, all the ones I know well are are porn addicts. Now, uh, so many they, different... We learned Dafyomi. And you think any of those people also learned Dafyomi? I'm not sure. You're uh, saying you learned Dafyomi at the same time you had your porn addiction? Like that was possible that you you'd go to Dafyomi in the morning and even when you were you're working in porn i mean i read your book where you mentioned that but i, I would assume that's kind of uh unique in that matter that uh you like you you could be within the community like especially if you're an ffb you're born orthodox jew you're still within the community but if you're still a properly function like you're davening in the morning you're showing up to synagogue at night to to learn torah you can almost always tell when you're on the inside, like this guy's falling out, this guy's doing stuff that he shouldn't be doing. And even what you're talking about, like, you know, like we're in synagogue to learn Torah, you know, not to hear your stupid stories about what's going on in the outside world. And so like the guy with the porn addiction, if he comes to synagogue or, you know, he's wants to tell everybody about what's going on in the outside world as if you're you know, on the right path. Um, you know, it's like, who cares? Like, why do you keep on bringing this stuff up? Yeah, that's that's another difference. If you if you go to an Orthodox synagogue and you start telling people that you banged a prostitute or that you've been sexually promiscuous, you're not going to get congratulated for that. I mean, people think you're a, you're a freak and, and a total weirdo. I mean, Orthodox Jews understand human weakness, but they're not going to congratulate you. So, for example, if I if I banged a porn star and I shared that with, with someone secular, one of the most likely responses I'd get would be, were you safe? Meaning, did you use a condom? But if I share that information with someone's religious, they would say something like, you know, what were you thinking? Like, my God, you've, you've uh, become a complete degenerate. So very different reactions. Yeah, I mean, you knew that was wrong. Like, how could you possibly have not known that that was wrong? okay you succumbed and like okay maybe she was beautiful and it was impossible to resist or uh, you know the circumstance but but say like you know like con you're an orthodox jew like how could you have not known that that was wrong doesn't matter how beautiful she was it doesn't matter you know she was famous and i was saying like bringing the outside into the synagogue even if you're not talking degeneracy just like you know like i mean you're in hollywood so you could be meeting famous people and uh but but saying if you're you know for Brent, a you know, Torah Jew, no one cares about your Hollywood stories. You know, it doesn't matter who you're hanging out with or like what you accomplish. It's like, why are you bringing that inside the base medrash? Yeah, and uh, to to be honest, I, I wasn't talking about this stuff in in a, in a synagogue or in a, in a base medrash. Now, you also have some background in Hinduism. What is Hinduism's attitude towards sex to compare and contrast it with Orthodox Judaism? To some extent, it's even more extreme than Orthodox Judaism, because, uh, um, and I think Indians probably have lower testosterone in general than even Jews, even Orthodox Jews. Uh, but you know, like generally, Orthodox Judaism promotes, besides for the you know the menstrual purity laws, a healthy sex life with your wife, and so you know with some of the extreme Hinduism. You know, it's kind of like sex is evil. Um, it's only for procreation. And, 
you know you should do it as as few times as possible and uh you know there could also be uh you know ethnic culture just having a lower level of testosterone yeah although and- the, also porn addiction is huge in india and there's you know, also degeneracy of you know off the derrick hindus and strip clubs and prostitutes and all that and i mean you know god forbid uh Hindus and Jews a lot of times are good customers to prostitutes because they don't they they they're less of a risk to beat them and and more likely to pay. So like if you're a prostitute and, and like you know God forbid you're like oh it's an African American customer um, maybe he's going to beat me up and not pay. You think oh it's a Jewish customer or like a you know Indian Hindu customer um, he's likely not to beat me up and he's probably going to pay. So one of the most interesting statistics I, I saw with, with regard to marriage is that the, the number one criteria for a marriage lasting or not is how many sex partners the woman had before she entered the marriage. And those who married a woman who was a virgin were, were the most likely to have a, a marriage that, that lasts. And so I'd have to think that this is one of the, the key elements in traditional religious people staying married is that they're much less likely to have had previous sexual partners. And I mean, if you're, if you're having sex, you know, if you're married to a woman who's had 10 previous sexual partners, uh, I, I, I can't imagine that that bodes for, for good, you know, long-term success in your marriage. So I think this is one of the cases where ignorance is relatively bliss. I'd have to think that there is a quality of of uniqueness and, and specialness and, and holiness to never having any other sexual partner aside from your spouse. And that once people have tasted the forbidden fruit, it's, uh, it's something that they, that they're not going to have what, uh, people who have abstained do get to have with, with their spouse. Any thoughts? Yeah. When I was making that list in, of, uh, surprising things. And, and one of them I mentioned was how secluded or, protected from the outside world that you know, orthodox ultra orthodox jews are that uh, you know it's almost shocking um and you're saying like yeah it's, it's almost definitely true the marriage is going to be much more likely to last if the people are virgins going into it and uh you're also having children like that too that uh, you know so if you get older even if you go off the derrick or divorce later you know, if you're a father of uh, multiple kids and you're divorced, it not always like there, I've seen a lot of degenerates who are divorced and deadbeat dads who become extreme degenerates. But uh, you, you know, just keeping you occupied, and then and then saying like it's harder to be a porn addict if you have a bunch of kids running around because it's harder to uh, he, you know he, to uh, seclude yourself, uh, find extra time, or or not get caught. You know, because you always have you know your kids uh uh you know looking through looking through your stuff, they're going to catch you. So, it's not like uh, religious people completely renounce the, the pleasures of this world, but they they understand them in in proportion. So, I, I would think that, that there aren't that many Orthodox Jews who primarily regard their sex life as you know fulfilling a divine commandment, and that they maintain you know thoughts about God when they're making love to their spouse. But 
it's still it's still like eating and drinking and all sorts of other activities. It, it all falls within the rule book and, and within the, the folk ways of, of the people and the community and, and the tradition. So I, I would think that generally speaking, religious people don't put as much importance and don't depend as much on, you know, exciting sexual encounters to keep a relationship going. Yeah. And if they haven't, you don't have the comparison of the outside secular world or they have an unrealistically negative view towards the outside world, then, uh, you know, they don't feel like they're, you're missing, missing that much. But, uh, yeah, so like compared to some forms of Hinduism or Christianity that looks at sex in general as, you know, evil or bad, uh, Judaism is, you know, generally the golden mean, the, you know, the middle ground where your know, sex is has rules around it um but it's not in and of, in and of itself seen as evil and within the proper conditions you you're expected to uh uh you know to enjoy it and uh you know there there's you know god forbid like the hole in the sheet uh but a lot of uh you know i mean you could you know god forbid it's probably not proper to talk about but uh, you could see, like, you're married, uh, you're casitum, or you're having active sex life, or, or um, you're trying to different things out, trying to keep the love relation active. And I think generally the, you know, the need of going, you know, to half of the month without having relations does have an effect on uh, you keeping uh, your sexual relations exciting. Uh, with the marriage like even if you know, they're both beautiful people you have the most attractive wife if uh you might get burnt out or lose the attraction um but uh you know the the nita cycle not touching separation sleeping in different beds um I, I think there's been studies or at least from the orthodox jewish perspective that it uh you know keeps romance in the marriage uh alive over you know over the lifetime to uh have that uh, regular monthly half separation. Now, on the other hand, I notice a lot of Orthodox Jews who have marriages of extreme sexual privation from what they, they've told me that, uh, that I would expect that the, the more religious you are, uh, the less likely the woman is to be able to abandon herself to the sexual act and to pursue pleasure. So it's not like it's just a, a garden of roses if you if you live life as an Orthodox Jew and uh, stay a virgin until you get married, it still comes with considerable challenges. What have you learned from conversations and observation of people's relative happiness or lack thereof with regard to their sex life when you compare and contrast, say, Orthodox Jews and uh, secular people? Um, well, I mean, a lot of times, like I mentioned, that you know, from the Orthodox view, a lot of times there's a, a you know, misappropriation of how uh, degenerate secular secular culture is, um, and then there's, you know, because I mean, if we're outsiders, you know, you're convert on Balchuva, and then I was actively involved in party promoting or different things, so you, you might be the certain element of the community that's like, oh man, I can't believe I missed out on this because I was you know, an Orthodox Jew, especially people who, uh, you know, the nature of Bali converts to, uh, you know, sometimes 
befriend in the Orthodox people, people who are trying to be less religious, that uh, you really feel that they missed out on it. And then you could be like their coach for uh, you know, going out into the secular world. And even though you know, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert, not much of a ladies' man, that still like somehow I would you know play the role of like a like a dating coach, to, you know, God forbid, to a um, an Orthodox Jew. But I think you know Orthodox Jews don't talk about that kind of personal stuff that much. They talk about marriage, so like all the time, like oh, how come you're not married or dating, and you know have to set you up. Um, but like even within that. Um, I think you, you're Orthodox Jew. You'd be kind of embarrassed to, you'd be like, oh, I want someone that's like attractive, you know. So it's you know like Midos and uh, you know the family, and uh, you know so there's all sorts of talk about setting people up and kids and uh, extended family, uh, but you know generally the Orthodox Jew I think would shy away from, you know, like I mentioned what you said, you were kind of disappointed or shocked that Orthodox Judaism didn't make. Um, people better people and then i was pushing back i think in many ways orthodox judaism you know made me or people better people in the things that they emphasize and you know that you know hebrew like abusha embarrassment around sex and degeneracy that like now i'm an orthodox jew i'm embarrassed to like sexualize women or, or openly talk about that stuff uh you know i'm personally you know if not fearing god embarrassed before god but uh you, you're like a healthy embarrassment to talk about these subjects as opposed to in the secular world um I mean, you find degenerates in orthodox culture too uh but uh you know people who have uh, no embarrassment about talking about these subjects so i remember conservative rabbi harold kushner ran into a woman who he'd known from conservative judaism but she joined an orthodox synagogue and he asked her you know why'd you do that and she said, well, when I go to an Orthodox synagogue, nobody tells me a dirty joke. And so that's generally speaking true. It's quite rare that anyone's going to go up to a woman in or around an Orthodox synagogue and tell her a dirty joke. I mean, there are different standards of modesty. Yeah, I mean, if I use the word embarrassed, like I'm an Orthodox Jew, I would personally be embarrassed to act like that because like I'm an Orthodox Jew, I don't act like that. Yeah. Okay, so I asked you before the show if you've had any more revelations about life that might be fun to discuss on the show. And you mentioned running away from home at age 13. You were taken in by a foster family for, for a few days. So what, uh, what drove you to run away from home, and what did you learn from the experience? Um, you're just on happiness, issues at home. I like, don't you know, talk too much like my private problems as a kid, um, but... Uh, you know, kind of uh, the charitable nature, you know, like how uh, how uh, nice people were. Um, you know, I got caught stealing from a grocery store. Well, two aspects. One is like I lied and gave a false identity. And uh, it took like a week even for them to figure out who I was. Um, you know, so the nature of like that you could do that, you could lie and fool people like that. And, and maybe a lot of people, I saw Lex Friedman, they had the CIA analysis and the guy was saying like, he's friends with criminals because most people wouldn't think that you could just lie like that. Um, so there's, you know, the experiences, um, but you know, the police officer um, talked, uh, you know, he talked the store owner out of pressing charges. 
you know, the police officer um, bought me McDonald's out of his own money. Um, you know, there's a, a family that uh, took me into their house and, uh, you know, clothed me, fed me. Um, you know, just the, the, a certain, and, and it was in a, you know, like a small town in, in New York, a non-Jewish town. Um, but, but, you know, a certain charitable nature of mankind that I saw, you know, like as a youth, you know, might fear the police or uh, you, you would say like, no, there, there are good people out there. And, uh, you know, so I, I saw that uh, in my youth like that. I don't know if you ever, you know, had experience. I know you had, you were in foster homes like that. Uh, but I was saying there, there, you know, just people out there that make an attempt to be good people are charitable. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of goodness out there. I, I'm just curious. Did you ever steal from a store again? Um. That may have been the last time I did. I like I I stole occasionally as a younger a younger kid. That may be the last time I stole like that, and it was food. Like you know, I ran away. I didn't have any money, so I was just taking food. Hey. Um, but like I got I got caught, and uh, they called the police. And then uh, you know, I remember the police officer convinced the person. You know, like he's just a kid. You know, like uh, you know, the guy wanted to press charges. He convinced him not to press charges, and then uh, you know, bought me uh, McDonald's out of his own money. Wow, wow. Okay, Rodney, lo long time no talk. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Luke. I, I got to be careful what I say, Luke. Uh, I have a, you know, a divide administration stop to visit me today. So, oh, really? Always watching. Why did they stop to visit you? I don't know. Ask him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, so seriously, uh, Rodney, I haven't spoken to you for for months. What's what's going on? Oh, I've been dealing. I, I'm I'm actually uh, back from L.A. and I'm back tomorrow. I've been having some chop shop done at, at Cedars. So actually, I'm kind of sitting upright for the first time in probably about five days. I got stitches all down here in the gut. So uh, if I'm a little tight, then you know, bear bear with me. But uh, it's kind of an interesting. Uh, secular sex versus religious sex. I wonder if there's really a difference. I saw a great uh, a clip of a uh, Catholic uh, priest in Buckeye, and he was railing. Uh, it was mostly directed against Biden. It's all over the internet. But his overall message was about 30, within the last 30, 40 years, the bishops, and I'd say probably most religious leaders, stopped really tending to their flock. They stopped, you know, really being enforcers of the doctrine. Which is why you have a lot of this. You have some religion, supposedly religion, that's essentially motivational speaking. Uh, don't offend anybody to keep the donations coming in. And then you have the Protestants having schizophrenia because uh, they had to modify their uh, their uh, theology. Uh, and then uh, you know the Catholics. You know, depends on which. You know, if you're talking to the rather conservative Catholics, uh, they're holding true, but. Uh, uh, I, I tend to agree with this priest that when the uh, leaders of the church stop really enforcing the doctrine on the uh, uh, everybody, I, I think then you see a, you see kind of a, a trend into this, you know, anything goes, it feels good, do it, and then you just go to church. I mean, confession has become something that, you know, I just go out and do whatever I want, then confess I didn't do it, and, and all, is, all is well. So, uh, you know, I think the, as far as sexual worries, uh, you know, People blame the 60s, but 
probably the last 25, 30 years has gotten far worse than anything the 60s ever spawned. Um, that's just me. I, uh, I, you know, I have sons and daughters, and I had I, I took a little while coming on because I made a list. I was thinking, you know, both my wife, their mother, and I, we go, we give them the talk about what to bring home and what not to bring home, and what to look for and what not to look for. Can I share it with you? At least yes, mine. Yes. Yes. Yeah, my my wife has a much stricter uh, version, but I actually have uh, two uh, uh, you know primary rules that I tell them, and I say rules they can follow it fine if they don't. And then if things blow up, I'll be happy to laugh at them. But, uh, you know, for the sons and for the daughters, uh, for the daughters, uh, uh, no men with kids and an ex. And uh, for the uh, my sons, no single mothers. Because you wouldn't just be hooked, you know, marrying that uh, that particular partner. You're marrying their spouse for a good 18 years. And no matter what, let me tell you, that's never going to be your child. And not only are you hooked up with the ex and dealing with all that unnecessary uh, drama and BS. You're also dealing with the prior uh, in-law. So I always encourage my kids, look, there's a lot of fish out in the sea that haven't spawned, you know, uh, offspring yet. Go for one of those and have your own family. It sounds cruel, especially in the days where we're glorifying deadbeat dads and uh, making excuses for them and single mothers. I can't understand why we do either, but that's rule number one before I get into the basic ones. Uh, if, with regard to my sons, I tell them, uh, if the girl is well known at clubs and at bars and online, she's a no. Don't even bring her home. Uh, if she's uh, addicted to attention, she has to have attention by other people, friends, men, social media. That's a no. Um, if she requires a girl's night out, uh, that would be a no in my book. If she has to lie about you, definitely uh, a no. Uh, if she's littered uh, in tattoos and dresses trashy like a prostitute, no, and uh, my wife actually has a little more forceful uh, on uh, on this one. And uh, if she's estranged from family, no, uh, just no. And if she requires you requires you to change who you are or to estrange from your family, no. And then with daughters, uh, it's a couple. Uh, you know, I said no one but kids. Don't marry a guy with kids. There's plenty of them spawned before. But if he's unemployed, uh, habitually, no. He's uneducated. No, if he's not addressing numbers one and two, I just stated seriously. No, uh, if he still acts single. No, if he kisses and tells and talks graphically about you to other women or to his buddies, you you know that's a no. If it requires you to change who you are. Uh, no, and then always with both cases, exes just can't be friends. So uh, that's what I told him. I said he can take the advice. Uh, uh, take it or leave it. Um, you know, <laughs> I wish somebody would have given me that advice when I was, you know, a lot, lot, lot younger. It didn't happen. And I kind of learned, uh, you know, learned by the school of hard knocks. Uh, how old were you when you got married? The first time? Yeah. 18. And the second time? 25. And that one stuck. That one stuck for 30 years. And, and what was the difference in you between 18 and 25? Well, I can't remember who said it, but it's a wise quote. It says that you take somebody that is exactly the same at 18 as they were at 30, in my case 25, then they've wasted, and they've, not, they've wasted a lot of time, not made any progress. Um, I matured quite a bit, and I started, you know, 
<laughs> I, I did mature, had to, and uh, you know, had had children, and uh, and I was just in a better place. I could probably I got a lot more spiritual, and uh, I didn't feel the need to rush. I, I think there's kind of a situation when young men and women are uh, are are younger. And I think it afflicts women. It used to afflict women probably more than guys, and now I think it's reversed. Where I, I you know, I'm 18. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not a man. Or I'm not a woman. I got to have a, I got to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I got to have a spouse. I got to have kids. And of course, some of the newer generation, they, they want it all right now. I must say, I was probably followed in that category where I kind of wanted to do it all really quick, and uh, that was a mistake. And what differences, if any, do you notice that uh, are generalizable between religious people and secular people with regard to sex? Well, it depends on the religious people. Um, uh, let me go back and there's another, uh, uh, well, let me answer that question. Uh, I think it depends on who you uh, ask. If you ask a, a Muslim, a devout Muslim, a devout LDS or an Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jew, you're going to get, or in some a Latin Catholic, you're going to get a different answer than you will, you know, a Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, you know, whatever. I think you're going to get a, a totally different answer. And I think that has more to do with how things have morphed and probably uh, uh, changed politically, where politics now drives everything, including theology. So I, I have noticed that, uh, you know, my, uh, a couple of my kids are LDS. We, we are not a, you know, <laughs> it's not just one religion in my family. A couple of kids are LDS. My oldest son married an LDS uh, uh, girl, very nice girl. She's not, I wouldn't say, ultra-Orthodox LDS, but uh, she's a very nice girl. I think he made a, a great choice. Now, he remained Catholic, interestingly, and I don't know how they, they balance, but... Uh, uh, I can say that my oldest son matured uh, probably a lot sooner than I did uh, because he was he got more in tune with the spirituality uh, and, and religion uh, sooner than than I did. He embraced it. Me, it took a couple of catastrophic life events for me to fully uh, to fully come around. Uh, I still like to be in, you know in charge of everything. That's trying to do that is rather stupid. Uh, let so me get, um, go ahead, keep going. Go ahead. Oh, uh, David, I just wanted to get you back back in here. Uh, David, I, I'm just curious, what is what is life like in a highly sexualized society that is just constantly bombarding you with, you know, sexually charged material, just walking down the street, the way people dress, billboards, TV, uh, the Internet? There's just a, a constant bombardment of uh, sexual attractions. Uh, how does that affect you and your life, David? Well, I think it adds to a sense of identity. And a lot of times, like, you know, you're an Orthodox Jew or extreme, you know, Hindu, you have a feeling like it's you up against the world that, uh, that like, of course, everyone else acts like that. And that's what sets me apart from the rest of society. And, uh, you know, the over-sexualization is a simple thing to, uh, you know, create that separate identity. Like, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I don't act like that. And, you know, you know, like, of course, the rest of society acts like that. That's what uh, differentiates us. So, uh, you know, like I lived in Manhattan. I had roommates. You know, I was in the university dorms. Um, you know, I had, uh, you know, rapper 
um, uh, yeah, I even had a prostitute as a roommate for a period of time in, in New York who would, uh, God forbid, you know, bring bring customers into uh, into the apartment. Um, but I think it solidified my identity. Like I'm an Orthodox Jew. I don't behave like this. So I'm not sure if that, uh, you know, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, you know, like what, that, what was that, that actually... like having a, a prostitute as, as a roommate? Did you have interesting conversations? Was it distasteful to you or was it no big deal? No, I, I was curious. Like I mentioned that on the list, like of the phenomenon of prostitution. And, and I was shocked that, uh, um, you know, the nature of, uh, you know, just uh, the long lines, you know, like took took out an ad in the village voice and people would call and uh and people would pay and uh you know so it was it was kind of not you know shocking and surprising at the same time uh you know i mean i knew human nature and uh you know, I, I spoke to her i tried to talk her out of it uh convince her to go to school and uh you know read books and become more educated um but you know so i think it actually strengthened my identity and gave me like a you know pat on my back like uh i never touched her like you know i passed the test like i'm a good orthodox jew i was able to not succumb to uh you know my temptations and made me feel proud of myself and uh rodney what is your experience being living in a hypersexualized society well i find it rather entertaining and let me tell you when i was younger i embraced it uh that's the, <laughs> that's the difference i you know i i i I had a different kind of a different view, but as I said, that time period between when you're young and you start having to have responsibilities and you start thinking, wow, uh, you know, I got kids. I can't act 17 when you're a child. I, I wonder, you know, I, I go back to, I think there's still, there's two parallel societies. Now, my wife, I'll tell you what she tells the daughters. She said she doesn't care. She tells our daughters, it doesn't matter what you read on the internet or on social media or any of the, you know, girly magazines that uh, encourage promiscuity. Uh, my wife told my daughters, there's always going to be, uh, a woman is always going to be held to a higher standard. And my wife agrees with it, <laughs> as a matter of fact. She said, you should. Because, and I asked her about that. It's a kind of an interesting thing to say. And she said, well, I don't want my sons bringing home sluts. So they should be held to a, a higher standard. And uh, likewise, uh, that doesn't give the, the men a pass uh, to be, uh, 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 you know, anything less than gentlemen when they're looking at entering into, you know, a, a, a marriage and want a family. And to me, what I've seen a lot, Luke, on streams and, you know, on, on the Internet, guys are complaining, you know, they want a wife and they can't get one, they can't get a family. Well, if you look at their pattern of behavior, things that they say, they're not ready yet. And I, I highly encourage people, don't do it till you're absolutely ready because it's, it's, it can be very destructive and permanent. But in a hypersexualized society, you know, uh, we have uh, those people that want to remain, I don't want to use the word pious, but wonder, I'll just say we're decent, respect their uh, cultural traditions and their religious traditions. It's almost as if the LDS and the Orthodox Jews kind of have it, uh, you know, have, have kind of, uh, you know, figured it out in that they are rather insular. Um, I don't think I'm telling you anything that is not true, but they're very, they have a, almost an internal community, a state within a state. They have their own uh, almost social welfare programs and they very much support the family. 
And so they kind of inoculate themselves from that society and then leave the other to just dither and, and circle in the toilet. And there's something admirable. I find something admirable uh, about that, to tell you the truth. And, and what's the meaning of Joseph Stalin behind you? I said that it's a prop. I said the Biden administration. It's a joke that my oldest right. son, my oldest son dropped that off. <laughs> and uh, do, do you, we'll go off topic for a minute. Do you have any thoughts on the war in Ukraine? Well, I, it's not going any, it's, uh, Ukraine's not going to win. They're going to end up having to cry uncle. It goes back to what I said a long time ago when it first started. Either Russia would win it early and stop at the Dnieper River or it'd be a battle of resources. I can't, I don't understand how so-called conservatives, anti-war MAGA Republicans uh, who complained about, you know, the wars overseas can just allow basically an auto pay, a U.S. taxpayer auto pay to be sending a couple billion dollars every week or every other week to Ukraine. And now Biden wants to send uh, three billion to Taiwan. So, you know, here we can say rah, 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 we got out of Iraq. By the way, Iraq was imploding uh, earlier today. Uh, the American embassy was evacuated uh, by a helicopter. We haven't seen it on the news yet, but it's all over Middle Eastern TV. Um, we can say we got out of these wars. Well, actually, we didn't. Uh, we got out of Afghanistan. Uh, we surrendered uh, out of Iraq. We surrendered Afghanistan and then jumped right into a proxy war that in a year, less than a year, has cost almost as much as Iraq or Afghanistan has. So I, I, I just don't get it. If you total up all the dollars that have gone both direct and indirect, including we're paying the salaries of the Ukrainian parliament. We sent them governmental aid to fund their government. And the first thing they did was the parliamentarians at Kiev gave themselves a 70% raise. Really interesting. But if you were to total up all that dough, you can cut a check to every American citizen, emphasis on citizen, for about $1.8 million. And uh, what, what do you make of the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, Rodney? Well, I, I think it was, I think politically it was a stupid thing to do. I think it was seen as uh, uh, whoever green-lighted it thought it was going to break, it was probably going to take away, and it has to some degree. But overall, politically, it has solidified the FBI's uh, credibility as being in the, in the dumpster when you consider that uh, they uh, went and told uh, Facebook that lap, the laptop was, was Russian propaganda. I mean, what's the FBI doing? I, I, I'm surprised that the FBI director didn't tell Justice, push back on it. Why don't you do another subpoena before you send us down there? Because this is going to be a pardon my language, shitstorm for the Bureau and for its credibility, given Crossfire Hurricane, given the laptop story. I mean, who actually believes that the FBI can be honest brokers, especially when you start looking at all those documents and texts and emails between agents about tinkering in elections? Um, and the Presidential Records Act is a criminally, not a criminal act to begin with. And it specifically says the president you know, shall determine what is personal? I mean, they've got a lot of problems, and I like the fact that the judge is appointing a special master, because I think what we're going to find is there is no, there's no nuclear documents. That kind of dropped off. That was kind of a BS thing for social media gratification. But we're going to find that the level of, say, classified documents, which can also include the inner operations of the White House. I don't know if people understand. Classification means the documents that shows, you know, when the coffee is delivered from the vendor to the White House is a classified 
information. So I think what we're going to see is this was one was an attempt to uh, divert attention away uh, from some of Biden's other problems. That's why he snuck in the bailout for the student loans, which which is absolutely grotesque. And uh, and then hope to uh, light a fire on Trump to ignite his base. Trump, uh, Biden needed to ignite his base. His bite his base sees him as a doddering old fool with pre dementia that you know crashed the economy and he needed something to excite them. So how can he excite them more than to go over and sick the feds on Donald Trump, which they've been demanding for a long time, ever bit as much as the MAGA crowd has been dema- demanded Donald Trump to sick the feds on the Democrats. So, sorry, you know, it's it's all become so politically polarized now, and I think we passed the point of no return, sadly. Uh, David, you've been friends with uh, transsexuals. What did you learn from that experience? Um, I mean, God forbid, like, I live in Manhattan, and, uh, you know, there's so many of them. You know, like, uh, you know, Chelsea, I think half of the people who've had the surgery um in in the whole world live in Chelsea, Manhattan. Um I mean to some extent they're normal people. You talk about normal things. There's a lot of perversion. A lot of them are involved in forms of prostitution. And you know, surprising that uh you know, God forbid there, there's there's uh you know so many so many uh customers. So so it was almost you know shocking the phenomenon the first time you met someone, it's like, why would you possibly do that? To so then saying they're kind of like normal people, and then you know the level of the people that uh, you know, do that, that engage in kind of you know pejorative like perverse sexual behavior or even forms of prostitution, and then you know Manhattan culture just that there's such a huge market for transsexual prostitutes is almost uh, you know mind-boggling. But I mean, if you're in Manhattan. Um, you almost have to be blind not to see it because there's just so so many of them. And then you know, in certain neighborhoods, uh, you know, they're all over the place, like the meatpacking district, or uh, you, you know, the village, uh, you know, specifically uh, Chelsea, and even you know, certain places at night where prostitutes stand. So uh, you know, like you're driving through. Yeah, you know, I just kind of like to drive when I, a car just drive through Manhattan late at night and you know eventually you know the areas and uh you know there's places where prostitutes stand and there's places where uh you know trans transsexual prostitutes stand and so you know it's shocking that the phenomenon exists it's shocking that it's so popular and do you ever give it like a transsexual prostitute a ride home or anything yeah and discriminate like uh i mean god forbid is like cocaine use so a lot of them were you know, like uh um my roommate was, uh, you know, got, you know, said he was dealing cocaine and a lot of his customers were transsexuals and a lot of their customers were, were, you know, their, I, I don't call them like prostitutes and were their clients. So that, that like the level of cocaine use and related to their sexual activity. And, uh, you know, so I could deal with people as people like, you know, I, I I'm kind of homophobic and, uh, and, would definitely recommend against that, but I could still deal with people as people and, uh, you know, maintain friendships all here in Metro Detroit. I don't think I have, but, but like, you know, when I lived in outside of Manhattan, um, I didn't maintain friendships. I think it's specifically in Manhattan, uh, that, 
you know, because it's set up where they could be proud of it. They have their own area. It's a known phenomenon. Um, but, but like outside of Manhattan, I don't think I ever met a transsexual like that. I don't know if it's like that in LA, like you're a certain district, they're all over the place and they're proud of it. If you live there, you probably have friends like that. But, uh, you know, in Brooklyn, I don't think I ever met a single transsexual. And uh, Rodney, you've got a lot of transsexual friends. What have you learned from that? Oh, just just lots. Actually, no, I've, had, I've never had a tranny friend. However, when I was 17 and a friend of mine, uh, best friend of mine, we were down drinking in Mexico. I, uh, a, a tranny approached and started fawning on him, and he was too drunk to really realize that was a tranny. So I let him go upstairs and uh, waited about, oh, five minutes. He came out screaming in his boxer shorts, and I thought that was kind of funny. But they're all around. I mean, Luke, uh, you live in L.A. I'm there quite a bit for medical. I practically live there part-time, at least now through at least October. And uh, you'd have to be blind and ignorant not to, not to see them. It is rather entertaining. But uh, it all goes to the, you know, the more, what I would see as the moral degeneracy. You, get, you know, keep talking about prostitutes. Prostitution used to be a crime in which uh, the John and the prostitute would be arrested. Now the law considers the prostitute a human trafficking victim, arrest the John. And within an hour, the prostitute is right back out there in the corner turning tricks. The prostitute's not a crime victim. It's a business for them. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why society cracked down on it. There was a moral issue, which morals were not allowed to have anymore. And there was also the public health uh, issue. And uh, uh, so it, it's just kind of weird how inverted. That's why I said I think we have reached the point of no return, and we're starting to see now parallel societies uh, in the country. You hear this the tr thing on, on Twitter or whatever about national divorce. Well, the country's already separating, Luke, and I don't think there's anyone who can factually deny that. They're already separating uh, from uh, those you know, people that just have absolute polar opposite value systems. That, that's already happening. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's just absolutely bizarre. Uh, some, somebody was just killed on the, on the Hollywood Boulevard uh, what, last night. I just walked up to him and started shooting right on Hollywood Boulevard, the tourist side. I don't know, I, I don't know where we're going. Uh, as a society where everything is inverted, not just sexual uh, mores, but uh, in terms of crime, in terms of finance. I mean, it's okay. You know, I paid my kids' uh, student loans off. Now I have to pay somebody else's because they took five years for a four-year degree in queer studies. I have to pay that? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous uh, where, where we're going. I'm not so much worried. I'm not so much worked up about that as, as other people are because that's going to get struck down. Uh, in the courts, president can't relieve federal debt. Only Congress can relieve federal debt. Uh, the first thing we talked about, Luke, when I mentioned my conservative multiculturalism, and like you know, so in New York, it's districted like that. They, they have their area, and they they even have like political representation, yeah. and it's a phenomenon. I'm sure in L.A. also, and uh, you know, just like just like I could be Hasidic and live my lifestyle, um, you know, they could do what they want in their area and uh, and district and like when they're outside their area they're more careful uh, but like within their area it's generally like you know that that's their area that's the thing there uh rodney i'm disturbed by the overwhelming number of low effort transsexuals i would think that if you're going to be a transsexual <laughs> you should put some bloody effort into it like try try to look your, your best but 
people, I mean, transsexuals these days, they don't care about looking their best. When I was a kid, you know, transsexuals really put some effort in and, and we, we all appreciated it. But, but tranny, transsexuals these days, they, they're just so low effort, Rodney. I, I think it's part of the, the wider decline of America. Yeah, I mean, what is it with this low, these low-rent trannies that just go down to the Salvation Army and get a dead woman's wig and a dead woman's blouse and then walk around and declare they're the opposite sex so they can walk into the showers and look at little girls? Well, I mean, God forbid, like in New York, you know, I think there's a substantially high amount of sexual activity among people in that area. So, like, I'm not sure if someone would become a trans, you know, transsexual, at least, you know, even have the full surgery with the plans of you know being low sex and then, then even like surprising that it's popular there's you know like a clientele for it and that there's even you know people that prefer tranny prostitutes that uh you know, like god forbid it's a phenomenon and you know so it's almost mind-boggling uh you know we're talking about you know being embarrassed of sex in general or just saying like i, I couldn't bring myself to act like that uh but uh you know to people who are um over-sexualized that uh, they would experiment and then even prefer certain things like that. You know, it's almost uh, mind-boggling that you get the, the the mindset. In Manhattan, like, you know, if you're comparing, like, Detroit, you know, there's a lot of strip clubs or degeneracy, like, but but Manhattan, you know, probably to some extent, you know, maybe L.A., you know, San, San Bernardino has some of the you know, worst degeneracy in the world. You know, it's kind of interesting. I wonder, Luke, are... Uh... Are, uh, is there a, a gluttony of sex in, a, in America today? It seems like we all the bemoaning and complaining, the emphasis. I get a different signal. I get a different signal that there's not. It's not as pervasive. At least it was in the you know 80s when I was younger. Uh, it seems to me that the main complaint is they're not getting it enough, and the people that I you know people <laughs> men and women complain uh, will lie about the very basic same thing. They lie about the sex they did get, and they'll lie about the sex they didn't get. And you see the some of the number is going down in general, like across America. But like, you know, you saw like monkeypox or things in the in the certain areas, maybe like San Francisco or areas of New York. It's probably, you know, just as high or higher than it's ever been. Uh, But overall across America, it's going down. You know, uh, Oswald Spangler in the chat has a he says Americans are still overall sexual prudes. I think that depends on where you're at. Uh, to be honest, I, I think the separation loop, we're talking about parallel societies, mainly coastal and cities versus rural. I, I think that probably uh, the attitudes towards sex in the cities among the what I would say that the, the, the enlightened liberals and all of that is probably, you know, anything goes. But I venture there is more sexual activity among the more conservative and uh, uh, you know, rural areas uh, uh, of the country. I, I just, I something inside me thinks that's 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 the case. Uh, that those that scream the loudest about it and demand the most of it and want it anyway goes are the ones that aren't necessarily getting it and want it. And those that, uh, of course, I don't know. I've always lived by a motto, Luke: a man of honor does not kiss and tell. And uh, so, uh, to me, it's just something rather cheap. Uh, and that's something. Even when I was somewhat uh, a different person spiritually and otherwise. I, I didn't run out and bragging about I I did that girl I did that girl or I'm gonna do or whatever and I that was a that was a, a, a game changer if if I found out that a, a girlfriend had done the same with me that usually would end the relationship so and that's just a little tick that I had from uh, very early on. 
we got Luke. I mean, God forbid the international expert on San Bernardino Valley, but you know, like in Manhattan, <laughs> I mean, people go to the coastal cities because they want that lifestyle. And that, you know, so I mentioned, like, I think statistically, literally half of the people in the whole world who have had the sex change operation live in Chelsea, New York. Um, but, you know, but, uh, you know, that's the advantage. Of, that's why one of the reasons why people go to the big city. And if you talk like people who fall into pornography or prostitution, I mean, most people don't go to the big city planning on getting into pornography or prostitution they have bigger dreams and uh, and it doesn't work out like that and they fall into prostitutions or uh, pornography, but uh, you know they could acclimate to the lifestyle. And to a large extent, that lifestyle is only available in the big city. You know, Luke, I never had a tranny friend, but I did know a girl in college that had, had uh, shall we say, dabbled in porn, not for a very long time. And uh, she told me it was the worst mistake she'd ever made because, uh, you know, she was dabbling in porn for economic reason, which was stupid. Uh, but uh, and she said it ended up costing her soul for about almost 10 years because people would find her would know that she'd been in that industry. And she said they'd want to do all this stuff like they do in videos. She said, well, that's not actually what real sex is. But at the same time, it uh, it literally put the scarlet letter on her for almost 10 years before she was able to uh, overcome it. And how she overcome it uh, was the Catholic Church. She actually became very religious, very spiritual. Uh, met, uh, I believe it was a dentist. So she turned out very well. A guy took care of her and, you know, the, the sins of the past and such. But she always talked about how it was horrible, not to mention the, the scarlet letter, but the fact that when she... Uh, uh, you know, would try to date after she was out of it. It was always, you know, guys that wanted to reenact her videos. Yeah. Uh, Rodney, what, whatever happened to honor and honor codes? I mean, honor used to be a big deal in America, but as each year goes by, honor is seen as more and more of an anachronism. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that goes with, you know, uh, anything else. It, listen, everything flows downwards from, from culture. And, you know, if, if you are indoctrinated to believe that anything goes and that your word is not your bond, and, uh, you know, like I said, the man of honor does not kiss and tell, and that everything has, uh, you know, I call it situational ethics. Let me put it that way, Luke. I think that honor has been replaced by situational ethics. It's whatever good for me in the present time. So if I've given my word, say, to pay back a loan, and, uh, uh, you know, Mac Daddy, the crack dealer, is offering, you know, uh, somebody else's money to pay it off. I'm going to, you know, sacrifice my honor and let somebody else bear my cross. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think it's become situational ethics and a lack. I think it's also deterioration of, of the education system and also a change in demographics. This is not the same country as it was just 20 years ago demographically. And uh, so, uh, you know, you, we've had a huge influx in terms of demographics of people that believe the government should take care of them. They come from predominantly socialist, you know, full, you know, a socialist philosophy. And uh, I don't see there's a lot of honor o o over there when you figure it's okay for somebody else to take care of me uh, because they have more. Just because somebody has been successful, and this is a problem in American society today, is we have about 45 to 46 percent 
of people that are mooches and leeches and underachievers by design. I've always said, if you have problems in your life, look in the mirror for the, you know, for the you know, problem first. That's where the first you should look first. You don't look at your neighbor. You don't look at somebody else. But we now have a large degree of people that think because they didn't cut it because of life cho choices they've made, which is another thing that I've told my sons starting when they're about 16, the, the choices they make at an early age will be like that ripple in the pond. It'll come back and get you when you're 25 or 30 or even 40 because uh, it sets a trend. But we have a situation where, you know, people are quite fine that, uh, you know, to let others carry them and we'll rationalize it and normalize it. I mean, we've seen this in the student loan debate. I've never, they, uh, the people that are advocating for this, somebody else to pay somebody else's loans, they can't even defend it on the merits. They cannot give a rational and logical argument as to why somebody else who had a loan and paid it or their parents paid it for them can, uh, should have to pay that one off too. Uh, sorry. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an overall, what I consider an overall decline in the social uh, and uh, cultural uh, uh, standing uh, in the West. It's not just here. And uh, Duvid, have you noticed uh, Gentile notions of, of honor and uh, any, any reflections on that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's situational. Like I mentioned, you know, like, you know, God forbid when I ran away when I was a kid that, uh, I mean, that was uh you maybe even the 80s um or the but uh there's still a lot of honor in different situations you know like engineering um employment uh you're doing a good job keeping your word uh, but a lot of those values have switched and if it's situational it's hard to be a man of honor and you could be a good friend like you were thinking like okay you know club culture you're going to be a good friend by backing up your your friend's lie. Uh, you know, he's trying to get the girl and he's lying, uh, representing himself a way that is clearly not true. And you back them up in it because you're trying to help them succeed. And, you know, Orthodox Jews in the business world or something like that, you say, well, it's not, to, you know, it's situationally honorable or like in the hero way. Well, he's a hero to me. He was good to me, even if he was, uh, unhonorable, but th there is some, um, you know, even African Americans in the business world that uh, you know, value honesty, uh, value a hard day's work, uh, you know, doing doing their job, keeping their word. Um, although it's probably you know decreasing. I, I think I mentioned you know like my father's. I don't know how many generations back you know saying like you know, God forbid, I'm not leaving you anything except a good name. Uh, you know, you, you don't have a, a big inheritance coming to you, but I'll leave you a good name and you'll be the type thing, an honest man who kept his word. Um, and so that, you know, older school American, maybe rural, small town, uh, you know, element is definitely on the decline. Uh, Rodney, are there any things that you've noticed about promiscuous men, or, or for that matter, promiscuous women, but uh, but promiscuous men it's more subtle uh, do, do you see it uh... oh i don't think so at all what do you I don't see think so at all what do you see i, I think I, I think that both uh if you have a, a male or a female is promiscuous nowadays at least they wear it uh they wear it with pride uh when i was uh, in high school and, and, and college it was kind of it was kind of weird you kind of knew who was and who wasn't but they didn't run around 
you know, bragging about it. And it wasn't rewarded by society, i.e. don't slut shame. I happen to think that slut shaming is, is a good thing if you want to, you know, preserve your, uh, your family. So uh, I, I think that uh, it, it all goes to the times and how things have devolved. You know, um, who was it? Don Wills in the chat said I was dispensing dad advice while the kids had their fingers in their ears scrolling on their phones. I only give dad advice to my kids. I don't even tend to give advice to other people's kids. And I can tell you, uh, none of my daughters have been knocked up out of wedlock. Uh, my sons have not been accused of knocking any women up and haven't had any women come at uh, the doors saying, this is your child. Uh, my oldest son's married, has two children and a third one uh, on, on the way. Uh, my middle daughter is getting married. She's not knocked up. So, uh, you know, by any measure, I, I, I'm pretty happy with how my kids uh, have turned out. We don't agree on everything. Sometimes they troll me. Sometimes they're pissed off. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't give dad advice anyway. That's just what I, advice I've given my, my uh, family. Because every family is different. Uh, every family is different. The dynamics under it. People may think they know. You may think you know your neighbors. But you have no idea what goes on behind those four walls. I learned that in the in the, in the in the uh, legal profession, you start looking at complaints, domestic violence uh, issues and things of that nature, child molestation, uh, you just don't know. And uh, there was one other comment, I talked about how small town America will forgive a drug dealer before they'll forgive somebody running a brothel. I don't think that's true at all. I think in small town America, uh, particularly now, I, you know, particularly with fentanyl, all of that, I think there's kind of been a change you know, in Mexico, this is one of my problems with immigration. In Mexico, they build Catholic monuments with candles and all that to narco terrorists, to drug dealers. It's in the culture. I don't know why they do it, but they do it. Uh, you know, I have family members that are befuddled, you know, by it, don't understand why that it's done. But it's a totally, when you import a people from another society or another culture, you're also importing those values. So I don't think that in every uh, uh, society or say every demographic or every code that the drug dealer is rapidly forgiven. I know that in some areas that's probably true. And because, you know, the drug dealer actually probably some of those drug dealers in Mexico do more social uh, welfare programming and buying, buying off people than the, than the Mexican government. Uh, but I, I think it's been my experience that, uh, you know, if people, if the overall community knows that you ran a brothel and knows you were selling dope, you're not going to go very far socially in that society. You definitely won't. Uh, I know in in the, in the in the Jewish community, uh, and unless you're Meyer Lansky, uh, uh, and you won't uh, uh, go uh, do very well, say in, in some of the other uh, say say the Bible Belt, uh, you know, for instance. In the inner city, the country is split into two. We have two parallel societies and cultures going on that I don't know how you're going to make them reconcile and, and get along. They are so fundamentally different. Well, I would say it's situational, and there's many divides. So, like, in urban areas, like you said, Orthodox Jew, that would say, well, I, I just don't go to bars or clubs. It doesn't interest me. And even seeing, like, on the inside, like, it's loud, it smells bad, you know, people are drunk. I can't even imagine why you would want to go into that place versus the people that, like, go to bars that's what they do yeah. and you know so if it's promiscuity that uh, if you're in an urban culture and you go to bars and, and there's you know somewhat of an upside like in manhattan 
you could meet millionaires and famous people besides for promiscuity like you're living in manhattan that's what's on every street corner bars and clubs and it's not just like you're, you're going there for promiscuity there's also like you know you want business connections uh you want to uh, meet famous people to uh uh and it's the nature of how it's done in the bars over alcohol and dancing and so if you want to acquire those skills you know you learn how to dance and you know the music and uh you know alcohol and all, all the you know the cultural norms of that uh, type culture versus you're saying like like no I'm an orthodox Jew like I, I just don't have any interest of what's happening on the other side of those walls you know put it all in the realm of degeneracy like you know just like mm -hmm. it's on becoming I would never go to one of those places and if uh, you know someone saw me at one of those places it would hurt my reputation so I came back to Detroit I did I don't go to bars. Um, but I mean, there is some advantage. Okay, like you meet women at bars, but you could also meet millionaires and business contacts and famous people and uh, you know, you know, various things that uh, you know. So it's it's one of many cultural divides, and I don't think that's just urban. I mean, even small towns have bars. Uh, you know, so like even rural areas, uh, you're going to have an element that they have bars and dancing, and you're going to have your you know, like Mormons who never had alcohol once in their life. Or you know, church people who don't go to bars, uh, but uh, you know, I'm pretty sure most small towns also have bars. And you uh, know, Luke, uh, a couple of uh, I'm sorry, Luke. Uh, ahead, I found Ronnie. out Mormons. You know, Mormons do dance. My daughter-in-law explained that when they have Mormons have dances, the rule is two books of Mormons between uh, if they're unmarried between the date. And so they do have Mormons do have dances. I I, I found that out, but. You know, I was going to use an example, Luke. I don't think, remember Goldstein, who started and ran Screw Magazine for years yes. and years, Jewish, and Larry Flint. I don't yes. think that Goldstein was would be was widely embraced in the overall Jewish community any more than Larry Flint. Or even Hugh Hefner, say, in the Gentile uh, community. They had their own little small group, you know, fan club, you know, in, in certain areas and in certain regions. But I don't think that they, you know, there's an example of people, you know, forgiving and forgetting. I, I just don't think that either one of them in their respective, uh, among the respective peoples, were widely uh, embraced. Uh, and maybe for a few years by teenagers who hid the books under the, you know, under the under the mattress. Uh, but uh, I just don't, uh, you know, I, I just don't think that, uh, uh, I don't think this type of behavior uh, is uh, widely embraced beyond certain regions certain areas and among certain shall we say i don't even say demographics populations i mean i think this is this is highlights the divide uh in the west and in uh and in the united states germany it's very pronounced northern germany and western germany versus southern germany and eastern germany uh, are, are are fundamentally different in terms of the culture these these types of issues and yeah, uh, rejecting that every town has like an entertainment district with bars sure. even even strip clubs i mean if it's a town of ten thousand people there's probably an entertainment district with a few bars and maybe you know 50 percent, 70 percent of the population never goes to the bars but there, there, you know there's a certain element that human nature you know just like homosexuals even small towns have homosexuals uh, but things like bars promiscuity prostitution even strip clubs th these are universal aspects of you know negative of human nature and exist uh, to you know to a certain extent everywhere 
but at the same time, David, there are counties still in the south and even in Missouri that are dry counties and no alcohol sales on Sunday. And if you want to buy booze, you know, in those uh, those areas, you go to the county line and right across the county line, there's a little dive bar uh, that sells, you know, that you can drink at or take it out in a brown paper bag. And uh, David, have you noticed any differences, any different uh, traits or demeanors between people who are promiscuous and people who aren't? I'd like to answer that, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's you're probably you're like a high level of extroversion, although you can't have introversions that have techniques of being promiscuous that you know, people that are introverts and came up with techniques that uh, somehow became successful despite introversion uh, or, or teaming up. You know, so there's a lot of teams of, uh, you know, dating type type teams. You work in teams. That could include, uh, you know, rich people with poor people, better looking people with uglier people, a combination of uh, skills. But, you know, it's probably one would be extreme uh, extroversion. And. Uh, but but I, I think it, it it's wide enough in society that there's going to be, uh, you know, that subset of. Uh, promiscuity is going to appear across a huge wide set type of people. You're going to have, uh, um, you know, even ugly people, uh, rich people, poor people, uh, extroverts, uh, introverts, athletic people, non-athletic people. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's just so spread across society that you're not going to have, uh, you know, like a small subset of character traits that are, that are dominant besides extroversion. Uh, Rodde, you wanted to tackle that question? Yeah, impulse control. It's been my experience that, you know, people that you just know and they admit, you know, are are uh, extremely uh, that way. Uh, it, it all goes around impulse control, which to me drives how you're going to live your life. If you lack impulse control, you're going to have problems downstream. So if you have lack impulse control when it turns to uh, sexuality, uh, you're going to have problems with debt. And it's been my experience, believe it or not, Luke, I know three people from back when I was in high school 30 years ago. And it's amazing. They were like that. Now, whether they had as many conquests as they claimed, but let's just take another their word. It might be true, but they lacked impulse control and discipline. And they're literally the same person at 50 that they were at 18 and 19. And it just seems to me that this, when we talk about promiscuity, it all goes back to impulse control and ultimately IQ as well. Uh, so that's my two cents on it. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely disagree. I mean, because you're going to see there's levels of, I mean, if you're talking like the high school, you know, Jack, but, but I mean, if you're in Manhattan or LA and people who are into dating culture, you know, even into their later ages, that you know don't build up a marriage, or um, they'll 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 probably have to have to be successfully promiscuous, high levels of impulse control, uh, you know, to maintain that into their uh, adulthood, and uh, and even IQ. Like at a certain point, you know, if it's like the high school jock, that uh, you know, if you're going to maintain that lifestyle into your older age it's going to actually select for higher IQ and uh, you know, cause you're, it, it's, it's an expensive lifestyle. Um, you know, you networks of people, 
you might need to successfully uh, lie and tell different stories to different people and to be able to keep all that in your head. So if you're talking like, you know, the guy from your high school, but if you're talking like, you know, a player, a Jewish player in, uh, you know, Manhattan or, uh, or, or L.A., uh, I think it'd be the opposite. It's going to select for a certain amount of impulse control and uh, IQ. Would you say uh, that, Luke? I'm going to counter that. Go ahead, Rodney. The jock, the, on the jock issue, we just saw a big headline. The uh, What is it? The relief kicker for the Buffalo Bills used to go to San Diego. The, the punter, yeah. A couple of my kids live there. The punter. That's right, the punter. Yeah. Uh, there's an example where uh, if all of the allegations are true, uh, and even if they're not true, uh, something that led to you know the fact that he had an impulse control problem. He was someplace. He had a bright future ahead of him. He knew it. He knew that he had a bright future ahead of himself, and yet he was still lacked the impulse control to extricate himself from situations and places that really he should not have been. That's my point about this. This punter that you know was on the line to be drafted and make millions of dollars down the road, you would think someone with a you know a little more impulse control would have the sense to say, "This is not where I should be," and being around a drunken female that could make allegations is not where I uh, should be. And I'm a firm believer, by the way, as um, parental advice, I've always told my daughter, "Don't drink." Uh, it's just not the same for a man as it is for a woman. Yeah, I mean, that's like, okay, the, you know, a drastic story and, you know, even like rape. There's but, a lot of them, David. But it's saying people that develop game, even you're thinking like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein or lower levels that uh, you have some sort of game that obviously they lack impulse control, that they're promiscuous or can't control their sexual urges, but they probably at the same time have extreme impulse control that they have to develop a game and strategy and act according to it. So if you're just talking like a jock that, uh, but if you're in, you Yeah, uh, yeah you, you made your point, David. Culture, yeah. You have to develop yeah. a game. Yeah. You have to have high levels of intelligence. You have to have like networks. Um, like I said, you, you might have to uh, keep your story straight, telling a whole bunch of different things to different people. And, uh, and, and so it does require... Uh, you know, like, you know, I, I party from I knew people that were successfully promiscuous, and a lot of them were smart and had high levels of impulse control. That's how they were successful at it. Okay. Well, my final this is my final point on that, Luke. Is uh, the problem with those two examples of Epstein and and we uh, Weinstein and a lot of others is a lot of times they don't make it, uh, and most of the time they don't make it because their lack of impulse control undermines them. Epstein died in a jail cell. And I don't believe he killed himself. And Harvey Weinstein has lost probably all of his wealth and is rotting away as a sick old man in prison because of a lack of impulse control. And that's my point is a lot of people that have this issue with being promiscuous, that overrides. I mean, we are to believe all the stories about Weinstein. He couldn't, he doesn't sit his pants behind the curtain at the Academy Awards if this is all true. And I don't have any reason to believe it's probably not true. Uh, and these guys were criminal. The same thing. I mean, say that that you're the, okay. These people fell into criminality of behavior, but but saying of uh, absolutely New York, it escalated. The problem escalated. I'm saying of regular New York and L.A. culture that uh, you presumably there's people within the bounds of the law that work that get up in the morning, maintain professional jobs, and 
do the nightlife culture and exhibit high levels of impulse control and sure. intelligence to be successful at it. And like so if Weinstein was a weird looking guy, he had to develop these schemes and games to successfully did it. And like it, it required, you know, like God forbid, he had relations with some of the be- most beautiful women in Hollywood and he had to uh, you know, develop these genius uh, schemes and tactics to do it. Okay. Okay, I think we've yep. we've done that to death. Uh, yeah. let, let's go around final words because I'm going to close off the the show. Uh, Rodney, any final words for this evening? No, I, I think we just need to watch. I think we're going to see some very tumultuous times, probably between now and November, and the midterms are going to be uh, rather interesting because I think there's a we're seeing the same type of push polling that we did in 2016, an attempt to create some democratic momentum. And uh, I, I think that probably we're, I, I still think that the Democrats lose the House and Senate. OK, and uh, David, any final words for this evening? Yeah, if you want to try again, maybe, you know, there's a lot of yeah. interesting psychological things or, you know, realizations. I mean, I think regarding you know, the, your topic of religious sex versus secular sex, that uh, it's a lifelong commitment. You know, so you're religious. You're saying that's not the type of behavior I'm going to partake in, and you know, Luke, you chose Orthodox Judaism and still struggled with it. And there are Orthodox Jews that struggle, but generally, you're Orthodox Jew, it's an understood, it's a lifelong commitment, and you're just not going to be able to partake in that uh, type behavior. Um, but you know, certainly, you know, Manhattan, LA, it's a common, you know, it's probably the majority lifestyle where you, you know, there's not a high value that they think you know, the, like the Orthodox Jew is, you know, is the weirdo. So, you know, like in, in New York and, you know, probably LA, um, you know, like God forbid, I, I saw that, you know, Destiny Nick Fuentes, uh, you know, interview and, you know, like, you know, Melania, like asking Nick Fuentes about his virginity. Um, so I think, you know, generally probably LA and, uh, and New York, you know, Orthodox Jews are more like the, you know, the outcast, like it's unbelievable. Like you, you can't be serious that, uh, you know, that you think this behavior is wrong. And, uh, and that's why I said it's somewhat identity formation. That's like, no, I mean, like it's me against the world. And I appreciate that that's, uh, you know, animal, but animal impulses and most people can't control their impulse to that extent, though they still probably have high levels of intelligence and in how they, you know, could be exerted and how they go about it. But I mean, that's what differentiates. Like, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I would just never, uh, you know, behave that way. And, you know, it's part of, uh, uh, you know, a strong identity formation. Okay, guys, uh, we'll continue another night. Thank you, and uh, bye-bye.